Welcome back to the journal feed. My name's Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, or hopefully you just have to less. And then we provide expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if that's not enough for you, then you can support us and support yourself by getting the CME credits that we now offer through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the precious Aaron Lacey and Clay Smith. And so we go on to the first article for this week, BET1, Prone Positioning of Awake Patients with Acute Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. You might have heard talk of what some are coining tummy time for our adult COVID patients. But proning hasn't come completely out of the blue. We already know that placing intubated ARDS patients in the prone position can have positive clinical outcomes. So here we're talking about something slightly different, though, as this was a study following awake patients in the hopes that proning could help stave off invasive ventilation. And as I understand it, many are doing some variation of this already. Some are advocating for patients to do more of like a rolling side to side than actual proning though. And anecdotal evidence as well as some case series have been fairly positive. But to officially recommend this practice, data should be gathered. These authors reviewed the available case series and found there was no evidence for a reduction in morbidity or mortality in proning awake patients with hypoxemic respiratory distress. They go on to make two arguments against proning as things stand. First is that the proposed benefit of proning could be met by just sitting the patients upright. And the reason that we don't do this in intubated patients is that it's actually kind of technically difficult. But in awake patients, you should be able to manage that just fine. The second point that the authors make is that the studies to date are riddled with confounders. So to actually recommend the practice, we would like to see a prospective RCT. The current pandemic has created a flurry of rushed science, so take care in what you read. Always question what it is you believe, and then think to yourself, what is the evidence that supports those beliefs? In a spoonful, today there is no evidence to support awake proning of patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure, as it hasn't been shown to alter any clinically relevant outcomes. Next, onto the second article titled The Use of Personal Protective Equipment Against Coronavirus Disease 2019 by Healthcare Professionals in Wuhan, China, a cross-sectional study out of the BMJ. COVID is dangerous, and all of you on the front lines are no doubt aware of this. We rely on PPE to protect us. And while you're showing up to help your patients, PPE is the only thing standing up to protect you so that you can continue to do your job. This study was a report of a natural experiment in which 240 healthcare providers were dispatched from parts of China where there was almost no COVID-19 to the hottest spots in Wuhan during the outbreak. All of these healthcare workers worked in the ICU at some point, all worked with COVID-positive patients, and all had at least one exposure to aerosol-generating procedures. These workers are trained on how to use PPE and also had it provided to them. This consisted largely of the same things that any of us would wear, including protective suits, masks, gloves, goggles, face shields, and gowns. What's of note is that none of them became ill while in Wuhan, nor did any of them test positive after returning home from their six to eight weeks of deployment in Wuhan. So in a spoonful, no healthcare workers dispatched to Wuhan who worked with COVID-19 positive patients became ill during their tour of duty and all of them were provided with the appropriate PPE. 
And that wraps up number two. Now on to number three, titled The Risk of Non-Union with Non-Selective NSAIDs, COX-2 Inhibitors, and Opioids, out of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Medications are designed to muck with cell signaling. The same cell signaling that our bodies have developed over millions of years to work in a multitude of ways. So quite plainly, when you're messing with things like that, you need to be careful of off-target effects. So for the medications we're talking about today, NSAIDs are known to have effects on some COX-1 and some COX-2 signaling. Selective COX-2 inhibitors, well, they selectively inhibit just COX-2. This affects a lot of things, but what we'll talk about today is that COX-2 signaling is important in fracture healing. Since both these medications affect COX-2, what difference can be seen between them, if any, on the risk of non-union? This study used a large insurance database with over 60 million members over a period of 16 years. The authors looked at the risk of fracture non-union patients exposed to COX-2 inhibitors and regular NSAIDs. The authors found that non-union requiring surgery was quite rare, happening in 0.9% with a total of nearly 3,000 cases. The exposure to a selective COX-2 inhibitor was associated with an 84% increase in the odds of non-union, while NSAIDs were not associated with differences in non-union rates. Also, if they had an opioid prescription, that increased the odds of non-union by 69%, though it's not clear if this is due to confounding and that these patients might have had greater severity of injuries. The results were similar whether you looked at all non-unions or non-unions requiring surgery. In a spoonful, selective COX-2 inhibitors increased the risk of non-union after fracture. Regular NSAIDs, though, did not. Also, opioids carried a similar association with increased non-union, though this may have been due to confounding. Next, we have the fourth article titled The Management of Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-Cell Toxicities, a Review and Guideline for Emergency Providers out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. As new treatments are constantly developed, we need to know about them and the emergencies that they can cause. A fairly novel such treatment is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, or shortened to just CAR-T therapy. This involves using the patient's own T-cells, removing them from the body, engineering them to fight cancer, and then putting them back in. The problem with this is that sometimes they fight too hard, and that can cause inflammation and collateral damage. And so we have a nice review of just about everything you need to know about CAR-T. CAR-T is used as a treatment for B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, chronic lymphoblastic leukemia, diffuse large B-cell and follicular lymphomas, and multiple myeloma. The two main dangerous effects you need to keep an eye on are cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, both of which are fairly common, but you also have to keep in mind that almost every other organ system can be affected in some way. The article had a nice figure that listed pretty much all of them, and that's also in our blog post. So we'll cover more details on the biggest risks. Cytokine release syndrome looks a lot like sepsis. You'll see fever and multiple organ failure. If you think this is happening, step one is going to be call oncology. They know best about striking the balance between enough inflammation to kill cancer, but not the patient. This side effect usually occurs early, usually in the first week after therapy, but may last as long as two weeks. Don't get distracted by CAR-T, though, and also consider other diagnoses that have similar pictures, which you may need to treat empirically. In terms of treatment for cytokine release syndrome, it's going to be mainly supportive. Try to plug all the holes in the failing organs that you can find. Toxalizumab, an anti-IL-6 receptor, may also be used in severe cases, but oncology is going to make the call for that one. Dexamethasone is second line, and most of these patients are going to need the ICU. Now, the main other side effect is neurotoxicity. 
which may be on its own or can also accompany cytokine release syndrome. Again, step one is going to be call for help. Get oncology and neurology this time on the line. Here, onset is often in the first week as well, but may last three weeks. For presentation of neurotoxicity, this will consist of altered mental status, a headache, difficulty speaking, anxiety, delirium, frankencephalopathy, and may cause seizures or stroke-like symptoms. Some patients will also present with frontal release, hypertonia, memory loss, and other odd neurological findings. You may want to get an MRI that can help you pare down your differential. This time, high-dose dexamethasone is going to be your first choice. Don't forget to call oncology first, though, and besides that, it's supportive therapy. So I hope this at least puts the side effects of CAR-T on your radar for patients that walk through your doors with these presentations. Lastly, we have the fifth article, which is titled Penetrating Injury in the Cardiac Box, out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. One of those things that we like to talk about in trauma is the cardiac box. It's that nice rectangle on your chest that's enclosed by the nipples laterally, the sternal notch superiorly, and the xiphoid process inferiorly. Penetrating trauma in this box is supposed to indicate when a patient is at higher risk for cardiac injury. But cardiac injury can happen all the time from outside the box. So just how useful is this box really? This was a retrospective study of 330 patients with penetrating injuries to the thorax over six and a half years at a single level one trauma center. Of these traumas, 42% were in the cardiac box, and 76% of those injuries were stab wounds. Overall, these patients with cardiac box involvement did have a higher rate of surgery. When you break it down by mechanism, there was no increase in cardiac injury for patients with gunshot wounds in or out of the box. On the other hand, stab wounds were five times more likely to have cardiac injury in the box versus not. Overall, mortality was not significantly changed by penetrating trauma in the box at 6.5% or out of the box at 3%. But mortality was higher if it was a gunshot wound in the box at 21% versus not at 6%. Meaning what we already know is that gunshots do a lot of damage. The authors of this paper emphasized that the ultrasound fast exam is probably more important for determining cardiac injury than the location of the hole. In a spoonful, penetrating injury to the cardiac box is more likely to cause cardiac injury and to need surgery than injuries elsewhere in the chest, but this result was mostly driven by stab wounds. Overall mortality was not affected by the box. Alright, this was a great week of articles, so let's do a quick wrap up of everything we covered. First, to date, there's no evidence to support awake-proning patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure since clinical benefits haven't been shown. You're educated people, though, so first, do no harm, and then do what you think is best. Second, you can shift your anxiety down a notch or two. If you have the PPE you need and the training to use it, you can feel protected from COVID-19. This worked for 420 healthcare workers who worked in Wuhan, China. Third, in patients with fracture, the risk of non-union was increased by 84% in those on selective COX-2 inhibitors, but was not changed by NSAIDs. Fourth, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, CAR-T, is used to treat some leukemias, lymphomas, and multiple myeloma. The main emergency side effects that you want to think about and keep on your radar are cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, both of which you'll want to call oncology as soon as possible for. Lastly, overall mortality was not changed by whether penetrating injury fell within the cardiac box or not. 
but it did make you more likely to have a cardiac injury or need surgery. Overall, though, it's best you probably use your FAST exam to determine whether a cardiac injury has happened or not, and don't rely on an imaginary box. So that's it for this week, everybody. The links to all the article summaries can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. We'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review. I myself would personally very, very much appreciate that. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. So we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>